welcome to Architecture Insights, the podcast produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm your host, Di Snape. In this episode, we're back at the opening of the 2016 Sydney Architecture Festival on mismatched chairs, surrounded by pallets and the fantastic PTW exhibition in the ambush event space, we heard from designers involved in the early stages of the Central Park development. Following on from Matt Coggan, who you might have listened to in our last episode, Alex Zarns of Zarns Studio talks about, amongst other things, a Singapore sensibility, a vision for design, flawed urban theories, and what can happen at the intersection of politics, finance and design. Following on from his talk, Alec chatted with Miles Martinoni, producer and journalist at The Guardian and very good friend of this podcast. And I'm going to leave it to Miles to introduce Alec a little more thoroughly. Well, I'd like to introduce uh, Alec Zanis. He's an award-winning architect with over 30 years of experience. He's shepherded many students at UNSW as a dean there. He's even helped to create a massive online course all about the Central Park Precinct. And he is one of the people responsible for the original master plan of the Central Park Precinct. So Alex is going to take us through a, a little bit of, about what he has to go through to try and get a precinct like this off the ground. Um, take it away, Alex. Thanks, Miles. And um, I'm going to talk about the work that preceded Matt's work. Um, we were lucky in Sydney, I think, to have a Singapore sensibility, I'll call it, which goes to the financial structures that Singapore-based people think of and can work with, quite different to ours, and also someone who has a vision for design. Because what I'll talk about is master planning, but you can have a good master plan and you will not get such a good outcome. If you have a bad master plan, you'll guarantee a bad outcome. That's very important. But you can also have a good master plan um, and get an exceptional outcome from the people who follow. Firstly, the, the visionary who leads it all, and then, of course, the, ta- the many talented architects, landscape architects, industrial designers, engineers, project managers, and so on, who deliver it, design and deliver it. So this is the story before the story, if I can put it that way. I'm going to start with saying that China is finally waking up, as this headline in the Financial Review uh, about a month ago reported, meaning that they've understood that architecture that's derived from self-referential or flawed urban theories, and I'm going to criticise the great architect Rem Koolhaas for flawed urban theories, um, deliver bad outcomes. They deliver often very poor places, and that link is very important because China's weakness is in the area of master planning, urban design, strategic planning. And so this is what they're realising, that you just can't buy great places by believing what architects always say, because some of their theories aren't urban friendly. Instead, I put the position that we as designers need to understand knowledge, and particularly new knowledge, and we transfer knowledge through design, which is a creative process, but it's also a rational and thinking process. And our objective must be to deliver places or material and, of material and cultural value. In other words, uplift materially, but also lasting value, cultural value. So that's what I think Central Park has done, and that's the question you should ask yourselves. Now, on the website, our website, I think, a link, 
and also UNSW, is this important story. And I can't talk to this story in 10 minutes, but I will say making places in Australia is about a 10 to 30 year exercise. Making places in China might be a five to 10 year exercise. Also what you'll see in this story is a story that's very important. Uh, Central Park is one of a number of good case studies about these sorts of things because it shows the intersection of politics, finance, and design. Politics because from the competition days in 2003, uh, there was a, a new regime that did not understand density. Uh, that resulted in the first developer uh, losing a significant amount of money, uh, not continuing with the project. It resulted in significant community interaction, all of it well-meaning, but ultimately the cause of the failure of the first developer. It led to um, the takeover of this site by the Minister for Planning on approval. It led to a court case by the community against the Minister for Planning, which was lost, and ultimately led to the sale of visionary developer. And so this is a, a very important story which demonstrates how politics, finance, and design intersect to create places. And instead, I'll just talk about how you design these sorts of places. This is what it was before we started an industrial blighted site, what we call a brownfield site, changing uh, from industry to mixed uses. This is the master plan as essentially amended. Across the horizontal line, you'll see an oval shape that was a reduction of connectivity, um, also uh, a movement, the vertical line um, of a new building element, and if you like, the privatization of one of the lanes uh, are some of the key moves, and the increase of floor space from 215,000 to about 250,000 square meters, and the reconfiguration of the park to, um, if you like, balance that floor space, all of which the original master plan is being led by myself and Peter John Kant from Zanus, we probably were the lead designers, and um, John Richardson and Nick Tyrrell from Cox in association, then uh, through Fraser's and Partners uh, as the amendment, although we provided the advice that supported that amendment. So this is important because the driver for that was a, a perception that we needed bigger footprints on Broadway to attract big banks. And I do believe that's a reasonable thing to do. So this is the amended master plan, and I'll concentrate mostly on the master plan itself. So urban design, the making of places around, is first and foremost around open space, movement systems, and what's missing is built form and now an emerging factor, which is what I'd call emerging technologies or smart technologies, a layer which we are yet to fully understand, but which will transform the way we design things. So I'll talk about open space here. Any one of these broad categories can lead urban design. In this place, open space led urban design. We realized that there was not enough open space in this area when compared to reasonable balances of open space and built form. And you can see that the circles meant that there was, that's a reasonable distance to travel to open space. There was not enough open space. So we reviewed where that space could be. And of course, this design was different to the guideline design. We thought that it could be away from intrusive factors such as noise and pollution. It could take into account, what is often the case, uh, subterranean water systems and heritage. Uh, also link with heritage, be more available to neighborhood areas, and then we put all those factors together to 
determined that there could be somewhere in that range. And then we basically narrowed it to five factors which limited the open space to that position, and then we parked it. We said that's enough study for open space. We went to movement systems, and we looked at the existing site, we looked at the existing street and block pattern in the adjacent conditions, and we extended the existing street and block pattern through the, the extension of Irving and O'Connor Street, and also the creation of Kent Road, central to the experience of Kensington Street. We introduced lanes to reflect the hierarchy of the lane system in Chippendale. We introduced a new road, and this is probably the most significant change to the amended plan, where we connected uh, vistas to heritage and produced a pedestrian-orientated street and also service street to back up the buildings on Broadway. And we then ended up with the street and grid pattern, which was very much a cohesive extension of Chippendale but also growing in scale as it moved towards Broadway. We put the park into that position and we realised that Balfour Street is the only street that connects Cleveland Street to Broadway and UTS. We also realised it was closed at UTS and we thought it could make a wonderful pedestrian-orientated open space connector. And so we looked at Heritage and created, at the Heritage Point, the park, closing the street and then extending the park with green fingers to create the open space network, including the streets that are, well, the lanes. And that is the overlay and the hierarchy, if you like, of the public open space that creates the street and block pattern of Central Park. And now when we look back and we place the new design into a broader context, we can see that we've extended the character of Chippendale, also accepting the, the modifying character that comes from the impact of a massive road of Broadway to create a neighbourhood, to create a, an extension of an existing high-quality precinct. I might say that some of the best work on Chippendale was done by Colin Stewart in 1975 for the City of Sydney that also underpins why Chippendale has become a great place. So that's an important point to make. Multiple authors, multiple inputs. Places are made by many people over time. So this is now um, a description of the minor streets and the street closures and then the major streets and then the uh, connectors, the uh, major streets in that to give you the hierarchy in total. And then when you go back and place the open space into that original drawing, you can see that uh, Central Park is important. It's located where there was no open space where it was most needed. Now we come to build form. And, of course, um, it's important to say that the public domain drives good places. The public, we know from evidence that streets do not change very often, hardly ever. Buildings do change. Fortunately, most of the time, bad buildings get rebuilt. Sometimes good buildings don't, get, don't survive, but basically buildings change, streets don't. What are the factors of build form? Of course, you can't go above a certain height because you'll hit aeroplanes but I'm going to concentrate mostly on the amenity of the public domain. And there are some amenities which you can quantify. Solar access, wind effects. I'll talk mostly about solar access. It was the key driver. What's the mistake at Barangaroo? The public domain was defined by real estate, by buildings. If you had defined the public domain by these factors, like solar access, you could never build the casino where it is, which overshadows the waterfront 
between 11 and quarter to one through the most important period of the year, from the equinoxes through the winter solstice and so on, because it was designed around real estate. This was designed the other way around, and you'll see that. It's designed around amenity to the public domain. So here is, as it existed before the change, before Brownfield became uh, precincts, this is a pure description of what a planning control means in terms of real estate. That is to say, if you put the floor space on this land, you would get a uniform volume that uh, looks like that. When we start to reinstate former streets, heritage items, extend the existing streets, introduce the lanes, introduce a little Broadway, which was not quite built that way, introduce the park and square, the connecting fingers, the park height limits to ensure solar access. Here's a three-dimensional description of the solar access, modifying the build forms, understanding that the greatest height is at UTS and the biggest road and the busiest road, the biggest road is Broadway. And one of the strategies was to ameliorate the impact of the UTS tower and also to make sure we conserved Kensington Street and extended by Kent Street and so on, made it a precinct. So here's the impact of solar access, a bit more study around modifying specific buildings, which are now lowered if you go from there to there to make sure more solar access occurs to the, to the public open space, and then modifying context to create an amelioration of bulk and scale, delivers um, envelopes like that, which also define the tower elements and produced a series of complex drawings which controlled not credible building shapes, but the public domain through the build form. And so this is the technical drawings. Uh, Matt showed this drawing, which showed the public domain plan, the street layout, the final master plan, and this image. This was drawn in 2005. And I just want to show it because we also dealt with a layer called the environment. And that that is a fundamental thing about the design, which I didn't talk about, and we envisaged green buildings, which meant consider the city as a farm. We should farm waste and recycle it, and we should also consider it as a sustainable ecology in terms of produce. So that was one of our thoughts. Now, very briefly, uh, the brewery yard. I always thought it was the best project. It had no financial legs, but it was the best project from an architect's point of view. Converting a brewery to a tri-generation plan from producing beer to producing cleaner energy was a great thing. But also, it's a story about conservation because uh, short of very special, precious items, which should be conserved in every respect, um, and I mean conserved, I think that heritage has to be balanced against public benefits. And this was the case. It was placed to be an iconic building within a park. So if we had followed entirely conservation methodologies, we may never have ended up with what I think is a much more exciting adaptation for the building. Of course, the major part of the plant is underneath the courtyard. It's like James Bond land under there in terms of technology and so on. And what I want to just briefly touch on is how beautiful these spaces are with the old fabric, how the geometry 
of the elements both come from the geometry of the building but also are transformed into, a, into an appropriate reflection of the forces and also geometry of the technology behind it. And this drawing, which is very poor on the screen, a very beautiful drawing, in fact, shows you how a rectangle becomes a series of curved shapes through parametric modeling. It is a destination, a place that reinforces the cultural dimension of using Central Park as a precinct. I wanted to jump back a bit to early in your presentation when you talked about what makes good design and how it's not just thinking about the design but it is how it actually intersects with policy and finance. How is that process working in this country? Well, um, that is what we should be talking about. We too often see design culture in isolation, sometimes so distanced from reality that you get the CCTV tower in Beijing and is celebrated around the world as a great achievement. Well, it isn't. It's an interesting artifact, but it's not a great achievement. It's a catastrophe. So I think that we need to be able to engage effectively with Treasury. We need to be able to speak the language of benefits over longer periods of time than the modelling periods of conventional economics and conventional return on investments. Um, it is true that governments should not do what private enterprise can do. The assumption is that private enterprise can deliver the transformation of an unsustainable environment to a more sustainable environment. But the commitment financially and in terms of cultural and political leadership involved to transform our environment to a more sustainable proposition is well beyond the return on investment cycles of private enterprise. And so it's not really being identified properly, but government has often underskilled bureaucracies and often has a short-term political cycle, is, I think, the key player to underpin the transformation of our world to make a more sustainable planet. And if we as designers don't speak that language and are not influential in the way we can articulate the issues, we have less chance of contributing to that transformation and also less chance of doing what I sometimes call, call us the finishers. We do make a difference, but you can not make a difference if you're given a bad brief. And most of the time, we're given a bad brief. So how can, I mean, in the world of design, the world of architecture, you're trying to build the best structure possible and you're specialist at that. That is, that is what these firms are there to do. How, do. how can that engage with the political process in order to improve the outcome? Well, I'm going to quote one of the most important urban designers in recent years, uh, Alex Washburn. What he says is that designers have to be ready. They have to have all the design thinking done, all the analysis done, and there is this hard to predict moment when for some reason politics and finance intersect. So it is really that confluence, that intersection of finance and politics, but the design was there. It was ready for years. It started in 2003, went through horrors 2004, 2005. We served 
Australand, Carlton United Brewery. We had the city government, CSPC, the state government. We had the political process of the community. Everybody was in there. The design did not change. It evolved a little bit, but it did not significantly change. Finally, politics and finance came together through quite difficult moments, court cases, and it happened. So I believe that Alex Washburn's got it right. He says the same thing about the skyline. For being prepared for that, is it, is it simply about having all the steps, all of the justifications for the design so that when it comes to the cost, it doesn't, people don't just look at the financial cost of development, they look at the contribution to the space and to the city? Well, there are two parts to that, the way I'm understanding the question. One part is a plea to our combined professions, and I include everybody in the building environment, include, including the Frasers and the construction managers and so on, and that is really do your homework. Do not be influenced by um, a lot of design thinking, which is useful, but not always applicable to city making. That's why I did say that uh, design is the transfer of knowledge. It requires deep knowledge to be effective, robust city-making design. So I say, firstly, the first part of that thing is designers have to have the work done. And the second part of that is around the financial side, and that is we do know that there is economic benefit that accrues from well-made places. Even overall, a massive economic benefit that accrued from what was, for example, deemed to be a financial catastrophe, the Sydney Opera House. The problem we have is that we can't measure it, we can't quantify it very easily. And also the other problem is that the benefit accrues to somebody else as opposed to the person who spent the money. So there's, there has to be ways of thinking that allow us to look at designs and take a sort of a longer view. And I'm going to say that that involves taking on risk, like the Opera House, like Central Park, and it also takes, I think, a commitment to a greater social purpose in the longer term. And I think that's a cultural thing. And is that a shift we need to see within governments and government departments? Well, my fundamental proposition is that corporates are less flexible, politicians are not very flexible, but corporates are, are less flexible as they have to deliver you know, commitment to a quadruple bottom line, but the big bottom line is return on investment, and it could be over a one, two, three, four, five year period, maybe an eight, nine, ten year period, like this one, but it's not going to be over a 20, 30 year period very often. So I think my fundamental proposition is that government have to realise, as they do invest in things that private enterprise can't invest in, that once again the environment is returning to being one of those things. We have to start building harbour bridges again. I'm not suggesting, I'm not saying roads and all that, I'm just saying we have to build to that vision. That was Alex Zahns in conversation with Miles Martinoni at the 2016 Sydney Architecture Festival. It's interesting, I think, that without prompting, the theme that emerged in the short talks 
in this part of the festival was an exploration of the idea of a costs to benefit offset. There's an acknowledgement that the designs for projects like Central Park often incorporate high cost elements that are really ambitious but are really challenging in terms of delivering and maintenance to justify against a value management process but in this context are seen to offer a far-reaching and long-term benefit to the precinct and to the wider community. While Alec points out that these benefits are immeasurable and although there can be a conversation about how many people walk through the green and how well received the precinct is, how much is lauded as an exemplar uh, nationally and internationally, I think these discussions reveal a challenge for the architectural community, which is how can we do a better job of measuring these benefits? You're listening to Architecture Insights. I'm Di Snape, and I would just like to say thanks to a few of the key supporters of the Sydney Architecture Festival where this episode was recorded. Central Park Mall, Fraser's Property, Sekisui House, Ambush Gallery, Alex Zarns and all the other speakers who gave so generously of their time over the weekend to contribute to the conversation. <laughs>